You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's scripture can be found in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 18. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 18. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." This is the word of the Lord. Well, hey, church family. My name is Ethan, one of the pastors here at Free City. I hope that you had a great weekend last weekend celebrating Easter, the resurrection of Jesus. It was definitely a a different day, but um, I I hope it was a joyful occasion. My family and I spent time kind of recounting thankfulness, and, and in its kind of weirdness, uh, it, it was also kind of just good to be at home, um, good to, to be together and, and uh, speak on the thankfulness of all that God has done for us in Jesus and to celebrate um, his death over the weekend and, and his resurrection Sunday morning. But it, it also stirred up this, man, I miss you guys. <laughs> I miss seeing you all on Sundays. Easter's like my favorite, as probably is true for most of you or a lot of you. Easter is one of my favorite Sundays of the year to just celebrate. And so I was definitely a miss getting to all be together. I want to throw out just a couple notes before we get into today's text. Um, and here they are. One is tonight. Uh, we have just a prayer meeting that we're going to do. It's going to be at 8.30 tonight uh, over Zoom. And so if you're not familiar with Zoom, uh, please contact us and, and we'll get you linked into what it is, but but probably many of you have become oriented with Zoom over the last month or so. Uh, but what we're going to do is, is just gather together for prayer, virtually looking at each other on the screen. And, and so log into Realm uh, to find the link for that. Um, it's also a password thing. The password is on Realm. If you don't have an account on Realm, just go to our website, fcclawrence.com, and scroll to the very bottom, and there you'll see a, a little place that you can click that just says, Log into Realm. Um, so we'd love to have you join us. That's tonight at 8.30 p.m. The second is uh, just a note that we reference a lot, but um, I, I don't really think we've done it in the past couple weeks. Um, it's city groups. Man, city groups are our main mode of discipleship in the life of our church. They're the space where we, we think about developing and deepening relationships as we really follow Jesus together. Currently, our city groups are all taking place via Zoom. And so if, if you're not in a city group, 
uh, you've been hesitant maybe to get into one, this is actually a great time for you to join one. Like if you're wary of new spaces, this is your moment. Check this out. You don't actually have to step foot into anyone's house. And I'll give you a way out. If you, if you absolutely hate it and feel super uncomfortable, you can fake a bad connection and bolt out of the meeting. But we'd love for you to jump into a city group. We've got information for those on our website under kind of the Life at Free City tab and, and then city groups. And you can email city group leaders and they can get you set up in that way. If you are just joining us or, or have been with us the last few weeks, you're aware of um, we are in a series that's just walking through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And throughout Paul's letter, he, he writes to speak of who makes up the church and, and how this group of people are to function. And really the entire letter is based around two big ideas that the gospel of Christ entails. That Jesus has reconciled all creation to himself and to God. That's kind of part one. And then two, that Jesus, in uniting people from all nations to himself and, and to God by his blood and through his spirit, that he has drawn us to one another in the church. So the last few weeks, we've covered chapter one and the first half of chapter two of Ephesians. And, and to just kind of recap us real quick, in chapter one, Paul reminds us of all the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. All that Christ has won us through his life, death, and resurrection, and how all of this was no accident, but it was a plan from before the foundations of the earth. It was a plan in which the Father would lavish his love through sending his Son to purchase a people, that he would then be with us, empowering, fueling, residing in us through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance in Christ. And so Paul begins a prayer toward the end of chapter one where he praises God for the Ephesians, how he's heard of their faith and, and love for all the saints. And, and then he prays for them. And he turns in his prayer asking that, that they would know God more, that they would, the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened to the reality that they have hope as adopted children, secure in and, and called by God, that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, they are now God's treasure. There is glorious inheritance. He also prays for them to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power here and now. Power that saves from eternal death to eternal life. God's power at work within. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Then, last week, Casey preached on the first half of chapter two. It's where Paul unpacks this gospel message that because of sin, we are dead. But then he clarifies in, in the great transition, you may be familiar with where it says, but God, the wonderful grace of God extended to the lifeless to raise us back to life in Jesus, that we were saved by grace through faith not through our works, and all of this is a gift. And then today, we step into verse 11. So we're going to be in, in Ephesians 2, 11 through 18 today. But in verse 11, this is where we have the first command in the entire letter of Ephesians. And that command is, is simple. Remember. 
it's a, it's a somewhat kind of puzzling first directive. Like we've gone a, a full chapter and a half in Ephesians before we have any call to action. And now we're given an order, but it's, it's completely different than we might expect. Remember. Man, what a frustratingly simple prescription. Just to remember. Like remembering summons us to, to slow to stop the unnecessary, to do something we quite possibly deem unnecessary. Remembering it is a labor that has no visible reward. Therefore, it it must not be worth our time. Well, this is often the belief that I carry. And then I think that this is why this word, though, this calling to remember is so fitting for us here and now. Like even in this kind of sort of juncture, thinking through as chaotic as things are, man, I I hope and pray that the disruption of this season is one that we as a church, both congregationally and individually, will look back on as the moment where we became more receptive to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. A time where we've like slow to recount, considering our lives and our habits and where we allow that consideration to lead us to repentance, to returning to the Lord, to revival, that we would perhaps be reminded of the goodness of God, that we would together remember who we were and and where we're prone to wonder and take hold of the great comfort of who we now are in Christ. And so let me pray for us and, and we'll get started. And, and even as we're doing this, I, I know this is you know, just a recording and it, and it could be weird, but potentially even as you just sit or as you're on a run or as you're, whatever you may be doing as you're driving, would you just maybe even just take a, a posture of receptivity? Whatever that might look like, hands open, arms out, kneeling, laying down, whatever you might feel might pull you out of your comfort zone as to say, just God, I'm yours. I want to be open. I want to be receptive to you. Move in my heart. Remind me of your grace. Let me pray for us. Jesus, would you speak to us today? Holy Spirit, as you've inspired Paul to write to the church at Ephesus, we know and we take hold of the reality that that those words weren't just pinned for them at that moment, but they are pinned for us today and they're still alive and active, cutting our hearts. And so would your words be grace to us? Would you, by the power of your spirit, lead us to recall, to remember the people that we were? And would that stoke the fire of thankfulness in our hearts for Jesus, all that you've made us to be now? So work in our midst, move in our hearts and our minds. We need you. Amen. It was 25 years ago today. The morning of April 19th, 1995, Timothy McVeigh parked a rented truck filled with explosives outside the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City. At 9.02 a.m., he detonated it, leaving 168 individuals dead, including 19 children, marking the worst domestic terrorist attack on American soil to this day. 
I mean, I remember how this news shook the country, but specifically our state. Growing up in, in Oklahoma, I remember this is one of like the first moments in my life where I had a realized fear, a fear outside of my control or my knowledge. News surrounding the event and the investigation consumed conversations in the marketplace, covered the newspapers, filled the nightly news and the daily news, filled our homes. I remember weeks after being in Oklahoma City with my parents and, and driving downtown. We saw the, the half-ruined building, and it was surrounded by a tall chain-link barrier that lined really the perimeter of the block. The sidewalks and, and fence had become a memorial ground. Tokens were visible from blocks away, mementos laid out, stuffed animals, flowers, all kinds of things, so numerous that you had to walk in the street. Lives were lost, families devastated, our community undone. Although I'm not sure that we ever like truly recover from the horror of an event of this nature, we remember it regularly. Today stands the Oklahoma City National Memorial. And, and this is a, a permanent monument designed to provoke remembrance. It's a beautiful recognition of individuals lost. A declaration that, of the value of human life. But it's also a reminder of how the people of Oklahoma and our nation came together in the midst of crisis. That although this tragedy occurred, and, and it's a part of our story, it doesn't define us as a people. And so if, if you've ever been to this memorial, or you've been to another memorial, it, it's pretty easy for you to stand back and look at the, the hugeness of this picture and remember. It's often easy for us to look outside of us and, and see things, remember these big stories. But in Ephesians 2... Paul is calling us to a similar memory. Although he's, we recognize there are big stories out there, it's, it's often hard for us to take into consideration our story. Paul in Ephesians 2 is saying, hey, remember your story of God's grace. Consider who you were before Jesus so that you might stand in awe of God's grace. Who God has made you to be, your new identity. Remember your story of redemption. And so this is the main idea that we're going to center around today in the text. And, and flowing from that, we're just going to look at really two parts that Paul spells out in this text to support this command. And one is life before Christ. And two is life now in Christ. So let's get to it. Part one, life before Christ. If you have your Bible Look at Ephesians 2, verse 11. Follow along with me. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We've established what's going on here. Paul, right off the bat, commands the church, these people, to remember. 
But there's a bit of a, a necessary background. In order to call the past to mind, we must know the situation. So if you're familiar with the Bible, we have two people groups here stated, Jews and Gentiles. Maybe a, a more succinct way to think about it is, is just simply there's the Jews and then there's everyone else, anyone not of the Jewish bloodline. If, if you've been with us in the Bible reading plan this year, you're, you're quite familiar with this differentiation. This is the Jews are Israel, God's covenantal people. They're the ones uniquely set aside in God's story of redemption. Paul, who penned the letter of Ephesians, writes about this, about them in Romans 9, verse 4 and 5, where he says, they are the Israelites. And then he talks about what they have. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The Jewish people were always central to God's story. They were the recipients of God's promises. We'll talk more about this in a bit. And, and then on top of that, Jesus himself was Jewish. The disciples were Jewish. So you can consider Acts 10, where, where we begin to see this understanding shift. The gospel is for the Jews, but in Acts 10, we see that it begins to transcend. It extends to also welcome in the Gentiles. Where in, in Acts 10, we have Peter preaching the gospel. And he says that it's Jesus whom all the prophets bear witness. That everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. This is Acts 10, 43. And, and then what we see following that in verse 45 is that then the Holy Spirit is poured out and it says in verse 45, even on the Gentiles. So we see two people groups, one with a promise and one without, until really we get to Acts 10, where then we see this is extended, this gospel message, even to the Gentiles. So consider the two groups, the Jews, a people who from the beginning of time have been God's people. This news was passed down and passed down and passed down. It was their heritage. And then the other group. The simplicity of the contrast should set this stage. One with a heritage, stories upon stories of God's miraculously faithful hand, his voice active to them, and his ear receptive to their voice. And then the Gentiles, fairly recent recipients of this gospel message. So in these circumstances, with this background, these groups begin to fall back into the belief that the Jews are in some ways more superior to the Gentiles, more valued by God. After all, like remember their story. They're the ones with the long history. So surely the Gentiles' receipt of salvation must have been some reactionary cause. Like this is how they begin to operate and believe. But Paul clarifies that Jew and Gentile alike are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Ephesians 2.8. Both have the same access to God the Father because both share the same mediator, Jesus, and they're both sealed with the same Holy Spirit, the guarantee of their inheritance. So Paul summons the Gentiles to remember. Remember so that they might stand in awe of God's grace. Look again at verse 12. Remember that 
you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated to the commonwealth of Israel and, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There's a series of statements describing the condition of the Gentiles before Christ, a building on of identity that ultimately culminates into the reality that they were without hope and without God in the world. If we look at the beginning of verse 12, we actually see this hopelessness defined. That to be hopeless is, if you jump back up to the beginning of 12, is to be cut off from Christ. To be one who does not have the promises of God working for you in your life. We may regularly kind of say this or talk about this while not realizing the gravity of the statement. We may know, yeah, 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 God's promises, they're for us. But here, Paul writes that there was a time when we were cut off and God's promises weren't for us. So what does this mean? If we look back to the Old Testament covenants, the ones that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the people of Israel, to David, it means we couldn't claim these covenants as our own. Covenants like Genesis 12 too, where God promises to bless Abram and to make his name great so that he will be a blessing. That through him, all the families of earth will be blessed. Or, or Genesis 17, 7, now Abram, known as Abraham in this, in this chapter, where God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. One that doesn't end. And the covenant is that I will be God to you and to your offspring after you. So essentially, I will be your God and you will be my people. So if we think this back, if you're on the receiving end of these promises, it's, it's really clear. God is your God. Meaning this God is for you. We mentioned this earlier. His, his hands are active to your benefit. His ear, it's tuned into your voice. You have confidence knowing that he works all things for your good. So when we read Paul's command to remember that we were once hopeless and godless, he's saying, hey, remember that there was a time when God was not your God. Before you received his grace, there was a time when his promises were not for you. And if this is true, and it is, when we begin to put into words the reality of this stage of life, into view comes the glorious hope of the gospel. For us to understand what Jesus has done, who we are in Christ, we must remember who we were, what we came from. We must remember our life before Christ, that we were hopeless and without God. When is the last time that, that you like considered this? when you really evaluated who you were before knowing Jesus. I don't, I don't simply mean circumstantially, although that is a part of the consideration. I mean like your identity, the foundational truth of who you were. When's the last time you gave this any thought? What would your life look like without Jesus? Some of you, like, you may never consider this. You walk through life as though you've, you've always been a recipient of God's promises. That God has always been your God. Well, Paul writes to clarify to us that that's not true. And there was a time when we were without hope and without God. 
And then there's others that, of you that, that may dwell in kind of this hopelessness regularly, plagued by the life that was condemned by your sin. Whatever the disposition, don't stop there. Both camps must tune into verse 13 to see the transition from past to present. So we see life before Christ. Consider it. Remember it. But then let's look at life in Christ. Look to verse 13. Verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, while the first half of this text highlights the hopelessness of the Gentiles in contrast with the heritage of the Jews, the transition of verse 13 levels the playing field. While once there were differences, those with promises and those without, now there is no differentiation. Both parties are now recipients of reconciliation brought about by the cross of Christ. Regardless of background or family lineage, past successes or past demons, the playing field is leveled at the cross. And this is insanely freeing news. Your right standing before God has nothing to do with you and everything to do with God. You can't work your way into his graces and it's not that you were born into the right family to get in. It is only through Jesus that we have access to God and because of Jesus, we all have the same access to God. God shows no partiality. He's not bent towards some socioeconomic status, some education, race, gender, political views, or anything else. Access to God is granted only through and in Jesus Christ. And this is a perplexing reality in our world. And think about this. We build walls based around how we think our country should or should not be ran. Our political parties, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Independent, etc. We welcome people into our lives according to whether or not they share the same opinions as us on sports team or music or reality television or whether or not they dress, walk, talk, and act like us. And shamefully, whether or not they share the same skin tone as us. You know, it's a, it's a crazy thing that we sell to ourselves, this, this great lie that, that the Jew and Gentile debate is some dated code, that, that even the, the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, that they're over. And I'm afraid that especially here, especially in Lawrence, we, we've come to truly believe that 
We're some city or people group inclusive of all people catering to none. I think we've just adapted and insulated to repackage a similar or same prejudice in a different context. Follow with me for just a second. We now just create communities or neighborhoods that are appropriately like priced out of the reach of certain individuals. Or, or we divide school districts based around certain sections of town in order to protect us from having to face the reality that these sections are also to help keep people over here and, and others over there. I realize I'm, I'm kind of prodding these topics without proposing any societal reform or, or legislation. I, I want us to consider just this, that, that we establish our own walls of hostility all over the place. We just might not see them for what they are. I'm afraid that we even do this in the church, both local and, and in the big C global church, here at Free City and then throughout the world. We sit in worship gatherings across the auditorium from people who have voted, in our opinion, in inconceivable ways. Or we attend city group with individuals who we pretend to listen to only to get in the car and blast them on our way home because of how simple their struggles are. And every time we build a wall of hostility, a wall that Jesus died, that Jesus shed his blood to destroy, and this text is, is not calling us to see the, the differentiation, but rather the oneness, the unity given through Christ. If you're in Christ, your identity is that you are God's. You are no longer defined by what you do or have done, but rather by whose you are. And this Christian, if this is true, then you have more in common with your fellow believers who affiliate with a different political party than the unbeliever who checks the same boxes as you in the voters booth. And furthermore, you have more in common with the Christian living in the foothills of the Himalayas in Nepal. You don't speak the same language, you don't listen to the same language, the same music. You don't share the same taste in cuisine. You've never even visited any of the same cities. However, you're both reconciled to God in Christ. You were both far off, but have been brought near. You both have the same Father, the same Savior, sealed by the same indwelling Spirit. There is no partiality here. For Jesus has broken down every wall to gain you access to the Father. We all come to the Father through Jesus, the Son, by the same Spirit. We've gone from a people without hope and without God in the world, but now because of Jesus, we know God as Father. Look back at verse 13. And verse 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And verse 16, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, 
therefore killing the hostility. We were brought near by the blood of Jesus. We were reconciled to God through the cross. You see, you don't go from being without God to having direct access to God by your actions or your accomplishments, by your works. Casey preached this last week, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And and then what? This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. It is through the cross of Christ that we have received this grace. Paul's letter is clear. It is only through Jesus's blood that we have been brought near only because of the cross that we're reconciled to God. Last weekend was Easter. And most of you are familiar. Easter is preceded by Good Friday. And Good Friday is the day that we remember the death of Jesus. And for me, every Good Friday for probably the past I don't know, like eight or nine years, I've read this one article, one that if you've been to our Good Friday services we've incorporated, it's called The Father's Cup. And really it's a, a narrative about the crucifixion. But it's, it's this deeply moving piece. And there's one part in particular that, that always, always grips my soul. It's about two thirds into the, the narrative and, and the account begins to convey Jesus upon the cross, him taking on our sin, becoming sin himself. And here's what it says. It says, then Jesus, he's startled by a foul odor. But this isn't the stench of open wounds. It's something else. And it crawls inside him. He looks up at his father. His father looks back, but Jesus doesn't recognize these eyes. They pierce the invisible world with fire and darken the visible sky. And Jesus feels dirty. He hangs between earth and heaven, filthy with human discharge on the outside and now filthy with human wickedness on the inside. What follows in this narrative is a bludgeoning of conviction. The father speaks and spits clear condemnation upon the one who has never committed violence or spoken a deceitful word in his life. As Isaiah 53, 9 says. The father speaks and begins to condemn Jesus as a murderer and a slanderous gossip. He took on our sin. It was there on Calvary's hill that Jesus, the son of God, the one who was due all the inheritance, he's the very fulfillment of all God's promises where he was cut off, estranged, without hope and without God in the world. He who had full access to the father was separated so that we might be drawn near Look at verse 17. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Jesus came and he preached gospel of peace to us because he shed his blood for us. And we must remember this story. 
It has not always been this way. We were once without hope and without God in the world, bankrupt, estranged, cut off. But Jesus upon the cross shed his blood, bringing us near. And it's because of Jesus that we now always, always, always have access to the Father. Remember your story of God's grace. Remember who you were before Christ so that you might stand now in awe of God's grace and who he has made you in Christ by his blood through the cross. When's the last time you recounted your story? I don't just mean like you, you gave it a nod, but I, I mean really remembered it. When, you, when you've just sat in it and let it provoke thankfulness. When's the last time you've shared your story with someone else? I grew up in a home with a dad and mom who follow Jesus. I heard about Jesus from a young age. Man, our entire life, it was oriented around the church. If you would have asked me at that point in my life, I would have probably told you that I was a Christian, partially because of the, you know, guilty by association nature of always being around the church, and then partially because I didn't want to be found out as a fraud. But I remember this specific moment. I was in the third grade. I was on the playground at East Elementary in Weatherford, Oklahoma, and my best friend and I, we're playing on the monkey bars. That's what we did every day. He looked over at me and he, he just said, hey, Ethan, have you been baptized? And what kind of kids ask that question? Like only in Oklahoma are kids on the playground asking about baptism. But anyway, Kyle says, hey, Ethan, you been baptized? Man, I, I remember that moment like yesterday. I remember freezing. Here's the thing. Kyle and I have been best friends forever. We went to the same church. We're always at each other's houses. Our mom and dad worked together. Like, we were very, very close. So here's where I was stuck. With anyone else, I could have lied to him. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've been baptized. With Kyle, it was like the world stopped for a moment. I began to consider, yeah, sure, I've been baptized. I could tell him that. But then I begin to think, well, shoot, then he's going to ask me follow-up questions. When were you baptized? Who baptized you? And so, you know, I really don't remember what happened from there. Maybe I threw a rock and misdirected him. Probably the reality of what happened was like, we thought, man, we got to get back to practicing our NBA jam skills on the monkey bars. Whatever happened, I was relieved from answering the question. But what happened with that question that Kyle asked me, was that I began to, for the first time in my life, consider what, what I would now say, what I felt in that moment, but probably couldn't have put words with it, a, a hopelessness about me. You know, I, I grew up, I, it's not that I had done anything wrong. After all, I'm like seven years old at this point. I had never like killed anyone, but I began to feel this sunken spirit like, wait a second, there's something missing. And it was the rest of that day and, and the rest of that week that this question, his question began to plague me. And I began to consider, wait a second, I don't know if I'm a Christian. And so also in that week, it, it's just perfectly fitting to 
continue this story. My church annually hosted a tent revival. We set up the big top, it looked like a circus coming to town, in the parking lot of our church and held nightly services to sing, to pray, to hear the preaching of word. And in that week, I remember sitting with Kyle's question. And I remember, while I don't exactly remember the stories or the sermons that were preached in the week that week, I, I do remember this one night in particular where I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my life. I, I felt the hopelessness in my heart welling up and, and God drawing me near where I began to understand what Jesus did upon the cross for me. And in the most Southern Baptist testimony, I walked the aisle and I surrendered my life to Jesus. He saved me. And I remember that evening, just kind of the, the circumstances surrounding it. I remember leaving the church that night and I, I just had like the biggest grin on my face and my mom and dad being like, what do you feel like? And I, I remember just saying, I think I just see everything new. Like I feel like I have new eyes. And what I know biblically now, while I, I don't know the entirety of what went on in that moment, I know this, God took my heart of stone and in its place gave me a heart of flesh. I know that in that moment, in that day, Jesus saved me. And it wasn't through anything that I did. For I had done, in, in my estimations, everything right in my life but I began to realize the hopelessness of my life that even in my good works, I couldn't approach God. I didn't have access to him. I needed Jesus. And it was years and years that I wrestled with this story. I mean, becoming a Christian at like the age of seven, what a simple story. What a false story. I remember as we got into middle school and high school and my friends like who had come from kind of wild backgrounds or had had a, a bit of, you know, wild lives coming to know Jesus and thinking, man, I wish that was my story. I remember always feeling really like my story was insignificant. But now what I've seen is I'm a father of, of two kids. I pray every single night that my story would be their story. And even sooner than mine. Because I don't ever think that anyone you talk to and, and hear their story of God's grace revealed to them, where they went from hopeless and godless to having full access to God, full of hope in Jesus. I don't think anyone would ever tell you, man, I just wish I would have waited longer. But I think every, every single person would say, and come to Jesus, receive him. So friends, Remember your story of God's grace. And this, this weekend, perhaps even just take time, like even if that's tonight, take a moment to share your story over dinner with your family or, or with your roommates or if you're by yourself, call up a friend and share your story. Or even think about like just sitting in the quiet stillness of your bedroom before you lay your head down for sleep Remember your story. Remember who you were before Jesus. Sit in it. 
Let that move you to thankfulness so that you might stand in awe of God's grace of who he has made you to be today. How he's given you a new identity. Remember your story of redemption and how God has saved you. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I ask that you would help us remember. Help us recall. Help us understand the story of grace that you've given us. Lord, open our hands so that we wouldn't think that we're the ones who gained it or earned it, but we just received it and well up thankfulness in our hearts as we realize your kindness to us through Christ, through his blood shed upon the cross and securing us through his resurrection and by his spirit. So move in our lives even now as we remember our story, how you've brought us together. Amen. Friends, if you have any needs, if you're sick, anything at all, please reach out to us, whether email or, or phone or, or social media. We love to pray for you. We'd love to serve you in any ways that we can.